This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. A dispute over the state's settlement with a victim of abuse at the former Youth Development Center has revealed some of how private lawyers are handling cases brought against the state. New data released this week showed New Hampshire's unemployment rate is at a historic low. But is that actually good news for the state? And researchers are scrambling to preserve history along New Hampshire's seacoast. Joining us now to talk about these stories and more are NHPR's Todd Bookman and the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So there have been about a thousand lawsuits filed surrounding allegations of decades of abuse at the state-run Youth Development Center. Amanda, I want to start with you this morning with this story. What has been the state's response so far? So the state has taken some steps to address this. Last year, the legislature set up a $100 million settlement fund for victims as a move that is supposed to acknowledge these claims and the suffering that has been endured by these victims. Um, Victims of physical abuse can receive awards of up to $150,000 through this fund, while victims of sexual abuse are eligible for up to $1.5 million. The fund is meant to provide a relatively quick alternative when you compare it to the process of going to court. And it's supposed to be a way for these people to avoid a potentially painful litigation process and trials that could force them to relive past trauma. The state is also prosecuting several former state employees that have been charged with perpetrating these crimes, although none of these cases have been resolved yet. And last month, the state did announce a victim would be awarded $1.5 million. That was the largest award from the settlement fund yet. Now, there's a dispute between the man and his former lawyers over what they are owed. Todd, can you tell us more about that lawsuit? Yeah, sure. So the lawsuit is very much about money. Um, which lawyers, the the old lawyer or the new lawyer, who who is entitled to their cut of the $1.5 million, or perhaps they're going to share it. It's going to be up to a judge uh, to now figure that out. So this case uh, involves um, somebody identified in court paperwork only as John Doe number 95. He originally signed on with an attorney named Russ Riley. Riley is very much the attorney at the center of all of these cases. Uh, he wanted to go to court uh, on behalf of John Doe number 95. Uh, John Doe became frustrated with Riley's counsel, according to court paperwork, wasn't in regular contact with him. Then he finally got in touch and told him he'd just prefer to settle the case. Riley opposed that. And again, the perception here is that uh, victims will likely receive more compensation if they go through the jury process than the settlement fund. That's at least the perception here. And so John Doe obtained a new attorney to help him through the settlement process and got the $1.5 million award. And now the old attorney and the new attorney are, are in dispute about Who's going to get what cut of that money? Yeah. And and how has this dispute revealed or what has this dispute revealed about how Riley and other private lawyers are handling lawsuits that are brought by victims against the state? Yeah. So so some interesting details have have emerged in the court paperwork over this payment dispute. Um, And and one of them relates to how much uh, attorney Russ Riley is charging at least this client, possibly others. He's got hundreds of, of clients. Uh, it appears for John Doe number 95, he requested a, a $10,000 retainer, is billing $400 hourly, and uh, is seeking 40% of any payout. And the other new fact uh, in this court paperwork is that John Doe and an unknown number of other plaintiffs are getting what are called pre-settlement loans. Sometimes this is also called litigation finance. And essentially, there are these private companies that will give plaintiffs in cases like this uh, very high interest loans based on the likely success of their case. So for John Doe, 
he was apparently, you know, fronted some money and is uh, facing a 35% interest rate. And a lot of people accuse this industry, which is perfectly legal, uh, of being predatory against uh, victims in, in cases like this. 35%. That's the number. Yeah. That's the number in the court paperwork. Yep. The attorney general's office is getting involved. Amanda, what's what's their stake in this? How are they responding? So the attorney general is, is in a pretty interesting position here. On the one hand, this office is charged with serving the people of New Hampshire, but they're also supposed to provide legal guidance to the state and in some cases defend it. So that creates sort of on the on the larger scale what some critics believe to be a conflict where the state is both prosecuting these former state employees it believes to have committed these crimes on the one hand, but defending itself against cases that are being brought by some of the victims. And the question of whether that is in fact a conflict is before a judge, but no decision has been made on that point yet. And then getting into the more nitty gritty details, the attorney general also has some specific responsibilities when it comes to the settlement fund. So they can raise legal issues regarding claims, and they're actually the ones who grant a claim or not. Um, and they're serving as something of a watchdog in the state for illegal practices representing consumers. So after the announcement of this $1.5 million award, um, some of the issues that Todd were mentioning came to light, and a spokesperson for the AG and the Department of Justice issued a, a, a statement in response to that. He claimed that the the lawyers who are involved, um, so Russ Riley, who we've already mentioned, and David Vizinazzo, have been losing clients who are instead opting to go with the settlement fund for weeks now, and basically touting the settlement process as a trauma-informed and vic victim-friendly um, avenue. The, the spokesperson for the Department of Justice also said that the two private attorneys had been accused of a, a host of profit-motivated um, ethics violations by at least two of their former YDC clients. And he pointed out these allegations um, that Riley was helping former YDC victims sign up for these predatory lending agreements uh, with an out-of-state loan shark and charging over 35 or almost 35% in interest. Okay. Yeah. So th there's there's a lot more here, and it's it's very nuanced. We're going to hear much more about it, I'm sure, as, as the months go on with this. This is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with NHPR's Todd Bookman and the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey. If you've got questions about what's going on in the state, you can always email us at voices at nhpr.org. Turning to another story this week, New Hampshire's unemployment rate is at a historic low. Amanda, what are the latest numbers and, and how do they compare to previous years? Yeah, so the latest numbers have dipped just below 2% unemployment. They're at 1.9%. Um, that's for the month of May. Before this, rates were hovering at just over 2%. And the last time unemployment was um, so low was in March and April of last year. In Just to give you a, a comparative sense here, since November of 2022, the unemployment rate has been declining. So we were at about 2.9% in November and 2.1% in April, and now at 1.9%. Okay. And as we said, a historic low here. But Todd, what makes New Hampshire different? Why do we have such a low unemployment rate compared to the rest of the country? Well, we aren't that much lower. There, there are a cluster of states right now across the country hovering around 2%. Um, I think Maine and Vermont, at last check, were, were both at around 2.4%. 
Um, New Hampshire, you know, does uh, have, you know, essentially 40 years of business friend friendly policies uh, to benefit it. Sometimes that's called the New Hampshire advantage by GOP politicians. There's likely a number of other factors that help keep New Hampshire's unemployment rate low, um, the, the age demographics of the state, the, the mix of industries um, that are here. But, you know, we're also seeing a really depressed jobless rate at the moment because there's simply fewer workers. Not everyone who left the job force during COVID has returned. There are still fewer people working today than there were uh, February, March of, of 2020. And so the demand for workers is huge. That's not just a New Hampshire problem. There, there are markets all across the country facing that, but it's one of the things that helps push that unemployment rate down so low. Sure. Yeah. And then Governor Sununu was highlighting this new unemployment number, saying this means the state's economy is strong. That's that's a message he's he's reiterated time and again. Amanda, what did you hear from New Hampshire economists? They were definitely not as optimistic as as Sununu's statement, that's for sure. So they did have a couple words of, of caution about what such a low unemployment rate could mean for the state. You know, clearly this is great news if you're in the market for a job, you've probably got one um, or you can find one relatively easily. But if you are in that position of looking to hire, it's probably going to be really hard for you to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this could encourage employers to raise wages in, in order to attract workers, and that can drive inflation. Yeah, so, so the real picture here is nuanced, and it depends on, on where you might be in your vantage point. Uh, Amanda, I do want to ask you something about your climate reporting from this week. Rising sea levels are threatening the work of those trying to preserve history along New Hampshire's coast. And how has sea level rise already affected historical sites here in the Granite State? The impact has already been very severe. I talked with Megan Howie. She's an archaeologist and professor at UNH, and she works on colonial era sites. Uh, because waterways were so important for transportation, many of these sites are right on the edge of the water. And she said that about 75 percent of the sites she goes looking for are already gone. Um, and some of the sites that she still she is able to find are really damaged as they're getting washed away by these rising tides. Yeah. Are researchers predicting we're going to lose you know, more of this? I mean, what, what, what's what do we know about the impact in, in, in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah. So the numbers are pretty bleak. They believe that around 14 percent of the known sites on New Hampshire's coast are going to be lost. Um, and that includes an astonishing 80 historic graveyards, which were also often built right next to the water. Those contain really important and, you know, formerly overlooked information about the state's early participation in the slave trade. Um, there's a lot of African-American graves that are included there and sort of ev evidence that points to their role in things like shipbuilding, domestic labor and agriculture. So how are these researchers, you know, racing to preserve those sites before they're they're gone? So Howie told me she's basically doing just that, like literally racing from one site to the next in order to try to document them before they disappear. She the site we we visited a site together and she said she just worked there for one season so she could turn her attention to other sites that are in danger. And then I also went back for a visit to the Strawberry Bank Museum. They've just installed um, a couple of new sensors that are supposed to measure their the water level and the salinity and humidity in their basements. So they're right on the coast in Portsmouth and they're Basements are experiencing inches of water each month. So on a really regular basis, that can cause huge problems, as you can imagine, to a building like mold, mildew, corrosion. I got to see where the bricks are crumbling apart. Right. Um, so they're trying to get that data in order to apply for grant funding to, to resolve some of those issues. Really interesting story uh, to read about this this week, Amanda. Uh, and for our final story in the recap this week, uh, a couple from Goffstown are accused of selling 
human organs stolen from Harvard Medical School. This was a shocking story. They're just two among a group of people facing federal charges related to organ trafficking. Todd, can you tell us more about that briefly and, and about the, the network that this has exposed? Sure. So this case centered around a Goffstown uh, guy named Cedric Lodge, head of the morgue at Harvard Medical School, as you said. Uh, would uh, He's accused of, of bringing home organs, uh, body parts, from the morgue, he and his wife uh, operated essentially um, a small network at their house where they would sell them online. Uh, at least one customer was allowed to go into the morgue to select body parts. Uh, the indictments cover multi-states. There were at least six people charged as as part of this ring, um, people in Arkansas, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. I'm going to have to leave it at that tantalizing point right now. NHPR's Todd Bookman of the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey. And uh, you can find all of the stories we talked about this morning and much more on the reporting at nhpr.org and thebostonglobe.com slash nh. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. And we're here next Friday, of course, with a fresh recap, as always. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is NHPR.